daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Climate scientists say this past July was likely the hottest month on record and possibly the warmest in 120,000 years. It comes as heat waves sizzle across large swaths of Europe, Africa, North America, and Asia, along with wildfires raging in countries including Canada and Greece. In the meantime, heavy rains have led to deadly floodings across the world. The Chinese capital Beijing recorded its heaviest rainfall over the past few days since records began 140 years ago, resulting in over a dozen casualties. More than 125,000 people have been evacuated. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said the world has entered the era of global boiling. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa, and Europe, it's a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling, has arrived. What has been driving such extreme weather events worldwide? Are human activities and climate change to blame? Moreover, considering the severity and frequency of these events, could what we are experiencing now become the new normal? Let's bring in our panel. Peter Newman, professor of sustainability at Curtin University in Australia, and a lead author at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Professor Michael Milling, deputy director of the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research, and Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and executive director of Professional Association for China's Environment.、Uh, thank you all for being with us. And Professor Newman, to start with you.、Um, Extreme high temperatures and heavy rainfalls.、Uh, these are what we are witnessing now.、Um, so the question is: Is our weather getting more extreme, and could this become the new normal? Unfortunately, I'd have to say yes. It is、uh, quite clear that it is the new normal. It is、um, hitting us in ways, as the Secretary General just said. Uh, is a bit of a surprise. We actually did predict a more gradual、uh, future that would unveil this、uh, increased warming, but、uh, these extremes, unbelievable extremes, and when you see the videos of all the、uh, intensity of it,、uh, there was one place in Iran that got to 67 degrees. I mean the. The, the, all the water supplies dried up. This this is、uh, this is beyond the kind of、uh, rationale of the science of it. It's an existential crisis now. We are experiencing something way beyond the the、uh, kind of thing that worries us. It is now it's a death type experience that we are beginning to see. Okay, so Professor Newman,、uh, because some would say this is、um, because of the El Nino. So, do you think、um, this can be explained by El Nino, or do you believe、um, the human-caused global warming has played a bigger role in in leading to those、uh, extreme weather patterns across the world?、Uh, it's only a one in a hundred thousand chance that this is not human-caused. That's the science of it, the statistical analysis. It is far beyond that. The trend is very, very clear, and it is global warming, global heating, global boiling, whatever you want to call it. It is going up, and the average temperature is showing that there is more and more energy going into the world's atmosphere. Energy has to find some way of turning into weather that is extreme. So、um, it's El Nino helps it to be worse in certain areas.、Um, that's why the whole world suddenly isn't going hot. It is 
of course, uh, a, uh, a patchy phenomenon, but those patches are getting more and more extreme. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Professor Wu, let's talk about um, the heavy rainfalls in China. What do you think have led to such record-breaking uh, rainfalls and floodings in some parts of China? Uh, what are the reasons behind? Well, I, th- I think all the debates recently and also discussions actually about the whys and the hows, uh, it's getting definitely clear. And uh, uh, just as Peter said, uh, uh, the global warming is here. Uh, I'd rather say it's a new normal. I, I prefer to say it's a new abnormal uh, because, uh, you know, all the things we're experiencing now definitely not really normal. It's not something we'll be able to adapt very quickly if it's a new normal. Uh, so that's why I prefer new abnormal. Now, China definitely, particular northern part of China around the Beijing area has been hit uh, by uh, the extreme down- rainfall and causing uh, flooding and uh, taking people's lives and properties. The reason is that uh, I think there are a few things. One, of course, is the summertime in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Secondly, we we just asked Peter about the return of El Nino, which is still developing. That's definitely, you know, doesn't really help. And then all things happened in the backdrop uh, of continued emissions and uh, from burning fossil fuels uh, into the atmosphere. I think there is a tremendous clarity about why we are stuck in the current situation, the new abnormal. But then there are things even more worrisome, uh, which sort of around this thresholds or tipping points, right? There's still a lot of unknowns out there. And uh, that's a sort of, you know, adding the horror, terror. Now we use like a killer, uh, you know, floods. We could use the deadly, uh, you know, extreme heat waves. And the wildfires, the smoke, smoking smoke actually is definitely devastating people's health and uh, impacting the food system, water system, energy system, transportation system, anything actually, like society, our economy, our agriculture, the ecosystems. So we're all in this together. Uh, So I think that's the part is really horrifying. Uh, What scientists have have been telling us is that, uh, so the the warming is not, not really surprising in a way, uh, because of, if you look at the IPCC's modeling, uh, they've been telling us, actually, scientists have been telling us that the warming is here already. And uh, so we are experiencing, uh, you know, that sort of warming. Uh, but what's sort of a horrible situation is that this is a sort of abnormal part. For instance, you know, sea surface temperature rising, the, you know, uh, Antarctica, the ice, you know, sea ice melting, shrinking. Uh, in the not only Antarctic but Arctic there as well, and uh, then you have this more intense, more frequent, uh, you know, stronger and longer-lasting sort of extreme weather events. Not only speed, uh, but also intensity, frequency, among others. There, so those are the things actually really put human development or species on this planet in a very difficult situation or danger uh, that's really threatening the survival actually, of our human beings. What's happening in northern part of China, in Beijing, the surrounding areas, uh, is, is telling us something very, very clearly. Uh, whatever we've been doing, on one side, it definitely has been damaging to the global ecosystem, including the climate system. But then in the meantime, you know, whatever we do at this moment is not adequate uh, to really, you know, protect ourselves, to protect our lives, our livelihoods, uh, infrastructure against this, this sort of extreme weather events or abnormal uh, mm-hmm. disasters there. So I think this reflection point, we need to not only say we, we need to survive, uh, rebuild, but more importantly, uh, policymakers, business community, everyone needs to reflect the reasons and figure out why we need to take actions, uh, you know, as soon as possible, as ambitious as possible in order to reduce the, the negative impacts we are bearing now. Well, Professor Wu, just now you used the term tipping point. And, you know, Guterres also says that we have 
you know, the era of global warming has ended and the era of global boiling has arrived. Uh, but that may seem metaphorical since boiling typically involves liquid turning into vapor, which apparently hasn't happened yet. Uh, then how do you think we should understand this term, global boiling? And in your opinion, does that effectively communicate the urgency of climate crisis or could it be seen as um, some sort of over-exaggeration? Well, I sort of like the, the word boiling, right? It's one of the many, many words describing the crisis we're living in today. Uh, I think it's also vivid. It's not met metaphorically. It's really vividly, realistically, actually, describing the current situation. Uh, I think Peter mentioned early on, if you look at China, China back in July registered uh, the highest level, uh, you know, uh, the hottest weather temperature uh, we reached somewhere, I think, at about 52.2 degrees Celsius. Uh, if you look at so the Death Valley in California, uh, they registered in middle middle of July, they registered, you know, 53.3 degrees Celsius there. Then if you look around the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, from North America, Southern Europe, Northern Africa, uh, as well as Caribbean Asia, uh, many parts, you know, the patches, I like the word, actually, Peter used the patches, you see many patches actually experiencing temperature above 50 degrees uh, Celsius uh, back in July. And also, if you look at the uh, Middle East and Iran and uh, registered, uh, you know, this is 66.7 degrees, almost 67 degrees, which is pretty much close to the limit to how we survive, lives can survive, actually, mm -hmm. under that sort of temperature. So, uh, boiling, as you mentioned, is sort of the you know water evaporation. It is when when you let, when the temperature gets that high, uh, you could imagine the you know evaporation of the humidity from the earth definitely has been accelerating, uh, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's a sort of vivid. There's another side of the boiling actually, not only the record high temperatures, but also the longer period of time. If you look at the Phoenix, actually. Uh, they had this, uh, you know, strict 31 straight days and experiencing uh, close to four, about, at about 40 degrees there. If you look at El Paso in the U.S., actually, it's a 44, 42 days and then Miami, 44 days there. So with all this sort of high temperature, extremely high temperatures there, so boiling, uh, it's really, as I said, it's not metaphorical. It's really vivid describing okay. the reality we are living in, and uh, so that's I feel like it's 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 one of the good words. I like it. It's very vivid. Uh, it's alert, uh, sort of uh, you know alarming everyone. Hopefully, people get it, uh, you know, by reading or listening to some this kind of a messages from the Secretary General of the UN. And if, you know, we are all talking about it. So hopefully, somehow that that's going to help raise the awareness and uh, wake people up to take actions. Okay, so Professor Meiling, I'd like to get your thought on this. Uh, would you agree that global boiling is is a, a, a vivid description of uh, the situation that we're facing right now, or do you feel that maybe the UN should be more cautious in choosing the words? Because some would argue that um, if you st use strong phrases like global boiling, it, it, it risks um, some kind of, it may lead to excessive pessimism about, about climate change and trigger a backlash against climate change efforts. Now that's it's a good question, and it's I think there is a tricky balance to achieve. But generally, I think you know the we've been using words like global warming that have a connotation of almost something pleasant. You know, Donald Trump, the former president here in the U.S., uh, every winter when it got particularly cold, he'd make a, a, a really silly tweet like, "Could use some more global warming right now, couldn't we?" I um, mean, I think that a reaction to that and and the sort of response to that, you know, that one doesn't treat it seriously enough is to use different words. If you recall, The Guardian, um, a UK-based but really global newspaper, changed um, by editorial decree, essentially, that one shouldn't talk of global warming anymore. They shouldn't write that in the newspaper, but the journalists should use global heating. And they've really consistently changed that. Um, there is, of course, a risk that at some point you, you run out of superlatives um, and, you know, things probably will get worse. So what's the next stage? How do we express that things are getting even worse than we predicted um, and, and even worse than they are right now? And that's, of course, the challenge we will have to face when we get there. But otherwise, I, I, I concur with absolutely concur with uh, my colleague Changhua. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, so Professor Newman,、uh, Antonio Guterres said. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. How do we understand this? Well, the speed was、uh, faster than some of the graphs would indicate, but it, it, it would never. None of that modelling could really predict the patchiness of it. That's that's something that has to be experienced, and we are now experiencing that. Um, there's a lot of places that would say, "Well, I can't feel any any of this boiling. It's it's over the top,"、um, and and we do have to be careful with saying that it's everywhere. But the the way that Changhua was able to explain how many places around the world are hitting these extremes, it it certainly does look statistically as though we've gone to the next stage. Maybe we should have global vaporisation as the next.、Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is the. It, it is a bit silly、uh, when it gets to that stage, but w- what we're trying to do is basically say the world is reach going into an era that we have never had cities and agriculture experiencing. We have had extremes before, but not in this heating range. We've had them cooler before, but this is totally new territory, and it's it's something that we have to avoid now by rapidly changing. The actions are the big thing that we need to focus on, not just the words that are explaining what we're. Now experiencing, we need to get on with the actions of change, because it is possible to so turn people off that they say, "Well, there's nothing we can do now. It's gone too far," and that's a terrible situation to reach. I don't believe that's the case. I think we can change, and we can bring the temperature down again of the Earth's atmosphere and and the oceans, because. As soon as we reach net zero, that will begin the cooling process, and we are well on the way to that. That's the key thing I would like to make sure that we understand. Okay, so you said rapid change, but the thing is, how do we reconcile the immediate need for for solutions like air conditioning to combat heat waves with the potential setback it poses to carbon emission reduction? Because this is really like um something like a vicious circle. Well, yes, as long as、uh, the solar or wind energy is producing the power for the air conditioning, then that's fine.、Uh, we we have to tap into that energy that's in our、uh, the natural energy that's there. That renewable energy is getting more and more extreme as well, and so we need to tap that energy and put it to use in helping us to cope with these changes. Um, and and solar energy has doubled in the last two years. China is now has now got more than half of the world's renewable energy that's been put in in this recent period,、uh, and it's 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 leading the world in showing how to generate a future where we tap into that sort of energy and use that to help us through this. Awful period where it is going to be extreme,、um, and the sooner we do that, the sooner we shut down and regulate and say, you can only have air conditioning on into the future if it is tapping into renewable energy. That's the way we have to change. We have to actually see every part of our lifestyle from here has to tap solar and wind energy rather than any other form of energy. Okay, so、uh, Professor Milling,、um, what what do you think? I mean, given the urgency of climate change, what can we do to address the current challenges like extreme high temperatures while aiming for a more sustainable future? Well, I I wholeheartedly agree with what Peter just said. You know, I do not think that we can expect such massive changes in. Human lifestyles and behaviors, and also expectations for the lifestyles. I mean, in vast parts of the world, you know, there's still 
hoping and looking forward to the day that they will have air conditioning, will have other energy driven appliances. So my conviction, just as Peter indicated, is that we have to make sure that we can provide the services and the amenities that we have come to expect and that so many in the world don't have yet but want to have in the future by making sure we provide those in a carbon neutral way, more energy efficient on the one hand, but also driven by electricity that is generated from renewable sources carbon neutrally. Now that's of course easier said than done. I think um, Peter's right, you know, China's showing how tremendous, what a tremendous leap one can do in just deploying these technologies, but there are also challenges faced both in China and in many other countries. And that is for instance, the connecting of these technologies to the grid, the ensuring of transmission and distribution infrastructures that are adequate and that have been deployed fast enough, often against local resistance. So there's still a number of, of systemic challenges, if you like, that we have to overcome to make sure that we can have renewable um, energy accessible and reliable and affordable, of course, 24-7. But at least on the cost side, it is coming down dramatically. And so I'm not so worried about the affordability. Some other issues like storage and again, the sort of the infrastructure to make sure the energy gets from where it's being mostly generated to where it will be used those are still challenges, but I think those can also be overcome. Mm -hmm. And do you think we should s still um, stick to the goal of uh, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius? Because some would argue that we, we have already missed that goal and maybe we should adapt to this reality. That, that's a, again, it's sort of a bit like the question of global boiling, you mm -hmm. know, it's, it's again, one of a careful balance. There has been discussion also in the literature among scholars given that it's very, very likely that we will miss the 1.5 degrees Celsius target. I don't think it's completely impossible. I mean, as Peter was alluding, you know, there's many ways to reach net zero and even over go then beyond that to, to negative emissions uh, in order to um, retroactively maybe even counteract an overshoot of the target, etc. The question is probably more a psychological one, a symbolic one, a, a political one as well. Should we give up a target that we are pretty sure we won't reach because then not reaching it will send a terrible signal and, and devastate people and make them lose hope or should we keep holding on to that as sort of the beacon uh, that guides us you know to to underscore the urgency to remind us that that we have to move faster and i mean there's a good reason we have this 1.5 degrees target in the political debate in the paris agreement and that is that for many nations around the world especially low-lying small island developing states this is actually an existential target potentially over, um, you know, going beyond that temperature target or beyond that temperature limit can be existentially devastating for such nations. So I think we should hold on to it, mm -hmm. but we also have to be prepared to deal with how do we explain and deal with the fact that we will eventually probably move past that and hopefully eventually return to it as well if we manage to get to negative emissions and as Peter said, cool the planet again. Mm -hmm. So Professor Wu, do you think we should hold on to that? And and what are the potential consequences of, of not reaching the 1.5 degrees Celsius target? Sure, I definitely uh, echo strongly uh, what Michael just said. I definitely support we need to stick to uh, the 1.5 degrees uh, target uh, because that's for, you know, before the end of the century, uh, that's, that's a goal. Uh, really reached not in a very easy manner, and it's a global consensus. We should definitely stick to that. Now, I want to add a couple of dimensions to that. Uh, you asked early on about sort of the mismatch, uh, you know, of the you know the crisis we're in and the solutions there. Uh, I think if we put the fairness, equity, justice issue on the side at this moment, what we are experiencing now globally uh, seems to be the prices we're paying now. Uh, because we've been ignoring, uh, you know, these issues and uh, for at least in the last three or four few decades already, right? And back in the late 1980s, scientists already started to tell us, warning the policymakers saying, hey, global warming is happening and we need to take action somehow, which is a slow, we've been in this slow move, uh, you know, for the last few decades. So, you know, again, there is, as I want to make clear, there is a sort of equity, fairness, justice issues there. But put that on the side at this moment. So human beings as a species on this planet, what we're going through now is the sort of prices we're paying now.
Now, mm. the second dimension, which related to this, actually, so I think a recent data, uh, you know, research basically telling us uh, we already sort of crossed, uh, you know, a few times, actually, particularly last month, crossed the, the threshold 1.5 degrees Celsius, somewhere between 1.5 and 1.6 degrees Celsius, so yes. warming. So in that, there are moments like that. So we are we already been experiencing how devastating, disastrous, calamitous actually when we get to that level. Global. Yes, sorry, I have to interrupt you because we'll have to take a very short break and coming back, we'll continue our discussion. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying, joined by Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Australia and a lead author at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Professor Michael Milling, Deputy Director of the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research, and Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of Professional Association for China's Environment. Uh, so, Professor Wu, um, I mean, just now we were discussing uh, this 1.5 degree Celsius target, and you know, the new head of, uh, of of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or IPCC, uh, Jim Ski, said that um, we are perhaps on track to far exceed that 1.5 degree Celsius of warming. But he also said that governments still have an unopened toolbox of policies to keep that goal alive. So what specific measures or approaches uh, do you think he was referring to by this toolbox? Sure, just to to finish the point I was making, mm-hmm. actually. So yes, last month was the hottest actually on record, July. And so we already sort of crossed a few times this 1.5 degrees Celsius target there. So we've been experiencing living in that sort of scenario, that sort of world already. So we, we start to understand how calamitous, how devastating that could be. Now, the, the point moving on to the question you just asked, um, I wouldn't say it's unopened. I think we pretty much sort of, if not 100% toolbox out there, we sort of 90, 95% there already. At least the one thing is very, very clear. Uh, burning of fossil fuels uh, definitely is the biggest uh, you know, issue we need to address. And uh, we, technology-wide, we have all the solutions there, right? And so that's why globally we are driving this clean energy uh, transition or transformation. We have solar, wind, renewable energy storage with all the technologies actually coming on board there as well. Uh, so now the issue is, so we now we have solutions. The question we need to ask is, why not? Why just have we not been able actually to really accelerate the deployment of those solutions at the faster pace, at the largest scale that are needed actually to 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 address to to you know tackle this issues so we you know challenges we are living in. I think those are the where it's not a simply say toolboxes. I really I think you know if you look at the US, China, EU, many other countries, they're all there. Now in reality, there are specific hurdles or barriers that need to be identified, understood, and addressed. One example. I think just yesterday, recently in the US, the PBS, NPR, and others actually did this survey. Even today, even going through all the disasters or extreme heat weather, immense disasters, there still uh, 70, more than 70, three quarters of uh, in the US, actually, the Republican voters still feel, think, you know, climate change is not the most important issue we need to deal with. Economic growth is rather than mm-hmm. climate change there. So there are issues like that in reality. They are becoming political barriers and hurdles there for us to accelerate. It's not just simply policy tools or solutions. We have the solutions, right? And even from a policy toolbox perspective, we sort of understand what needs to happen. But somehow in order to advance those agenda, we still face all kinds of barriers in reality. Of course, in that context, there are issues about justice issues, equity, fairness issues, whatever. We need to figure out how to how to deal with it. It's more like the complexity of the issues. We need to figure out how to deal with them. Okay, so uh, Professor Meiling, um I mean, talking about the um, political obstacles in, in implementing these new toolbox, you know, uh, Ski also emphasized the importance of a just transition to a greener future because 
climate action isn't all about long-term lines on graphs and scientific abstractions. It will have impact on real people, and people affected by this shift would often feel left out or disadvantaged, like indigenous people in Brazil, opposed to wind uh, turbines on their land, and those um, French yellow vests protesters against higher fuel taxes. So how do you think we can ensure that vulnerable communities are not disproportionately affected by this shift to a low-carbon economy? So you mentioned the word just transition, and you know, it, it reminds me if we go three, four decades back, well, three decades roughly to the time of the United Nations Conference on um, Environment and Development. Back then, the new word was sustainable development. You know, we create these new sort of concepts in order to show that we're trying to bridge developments or goals that traditionally have not been viewed to always be um, compatible with each other, which often was was an artificial juxtaposition. But in some cases, there are real trade-offs that have to be made. And in the transition to a low carbon or carbon neutral economy, there is no doubt that we will see certain sectors disappear. And with that, the livelihoods, the employment opportunities, you know, entire communities that will be affected, for instance, of course, uh, areas like coal mining or uh, fossil fuel extraction, oil, gas, etc. I mean, these are sectors that eventually will shrink to almost negligible dimensions going forward um, if we are true to our targets, if we are true to our commitments to deal with climate change. So what do you do with the communities in the way that they are affected in order to both make sure that they don't become, you know, that they're not oppo- opposed politically and, and not a vocal and articulate a constituency opposed to policy progress on climate, uh, but also to secure and sustain the long-term acceptance of this tremendous transformation that we need globally. Um, and so that's where this idea of a just transition has come. Um, and essentially, it is a concept of redistribution, if you like. So there will, of course, also be winners of this transformation. There will be new economic opportunities and tremendous investment, tremendous financial flows. And one of the challenges will be to make sure that some of those gains, some of those um, flows reach those that will be affected negatively, whether it's direct financial transfers, but more likely those things like, you know, worker retraining, workforce development, in order to ensure that those that are specialized to work in the old, in the high carbon economy, find opportunities in the future low carbon economy. This would require tremendous amounts of money, of course. And so the big challenge is, you know, money is scarce. Um, We have many, many different goals that we try to pursue with public funding, but also with private capital. How do we create enabling frameworks and how do we have a robust social debate on how to allocate um, these funds in a fair, transparent and ultimately effective way to achieve all the goals that we're pursuing at the same time? And again, some of these goals are not always easily sort of in in easy synergy. There are trade-offs that have to be made and solved. So it'll be continuous uh, political debates that will not be easy, I think, going forward. We shouldn't fool ourselves to think that, oh, it's just a just transition. That's all, you know, we just need this formula and we've solved the problem. No, there will be many, many hard debates that will be had to have, have to be had. But I think we can do that. And we've shown it in past transformations um, in history. Uh, So Professor Newman, as the lead author at the IPCC, what do you see as um, some of the less exploited tools uh, that are available to governments to cut uh, emissions? And why do you think they haven't been implemented on a larger scale? Well, uh, the experience at the IPCC over 12 years was to see a gradual, uh, almost begrudging acceptance that the technology was now reaching maturity in solar batteries and electric vehicles, and that we had the opportunity to actually mainstream very quickly. But it happened a lot quicker than the IPCC predicted. So I... I know what you're saying, that some that uh, we need to do more, but the reality is it has happened very quickly and it is now going exponential at a rate where you've got doubling every couple of years that will extraordinarily accelerate the opportunities that are there. And this is no longer being driven by governments, it's being driven by the world of finance because $88 trillion is now available only for net zero projects. So I live in a state 
that's in the same time zone as China, and we provide a lot of China's mining materials. We provide half of the world's iron ore and half of the world's lithium and other critical minerals, and they are just booming. So there's an extraordinary growth phase that we are part of as part of this transition. And those those uh, mining companies are all going net zero very rapidly. They are electrifying every process they've got. They are putting in solar and wind power in order to get a net zero project on, uh, um, product onto the market. That is something that I'm witnessing at a rate I never could have predicted when I was on the IPCC writing the uh, mitigation report, which came out only last year, but that that there was no literature which suggested that rate of adoption would be happening. And it is happening in many parts of the world. So not necessarily in, in the older parts of the world that were based around coal-fired industries. Um, they are going to have to shift and there will be just transition issues there. Our problem in transition is we can't get enough people with the skills in these new areas. So it's 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 uh, something to balance and to see that the more that governments and industry can commit to this new economy, the more rapidly we will achieve this astonishing goal we need of reducing and global cooling, um, reducing our our fossil fuels to the extent where global cooling will happen. Okay, so Professor Wu, um, actually besides um, like a new energy like solar energy or um, electric vehicles, there are some other emerging technologies such as carbon capture and storage um, to address emissions. So do you think the world should now place more emphasis on um, technology, uh, technological solutions to to address climate change like carbon capture or should the focus remain on reducing emissions from fossil fuels? Well, I I would vote for both. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's either or. Uh, it's both. It's uh, you know both renewable clean energy transition. In the meantime, we need to uh, continue to advance the carbon capture, particularly CCUS. Uh, there have been some very impressive uh, technology breakthroughs and uh, progresses in the last few years, decade or so. I definitely see that in the future as an important part of the solution. But I do want to go back to what Peter just said. Peter, actually, last week I was in your uh, place. (laughs) I was in um, Perth and uh, uh, literally doing the field study uh, of uh, the lithium mining and also, uh, you know, Chinese investment, the first investment overseas uh, in the first 100% automatic uh, sort of lithium processing, which is producing uh, lithium hydroxide actually outside China. Uh, it's really fascinating to meet with the key investors, companies going to those, uh, you know, uh, factory facilities, going to the mining areas. I was in Greenbush there as well. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely echo very, very strongly that uh, the renewable te- clean energy transition technologies are maturing so fast. Uh, at this moment, and China definitely has played a significant role, actually remarkable contribution uh, to, uh, you know, uh, accelerate the maturity of those technologies, particularly with the focus of building the industrial value chains to deliver, to turn those technologies into products and the services so that we will be able to deploy uh, those solutions at a much larger scale uh, at also affordable prices there as well. And uh, so from back to your question, basically technology, I don't think, again, all the technologies should be made available, uh, even though they are standing at different stages of maturity, like what we're talking about here, there are lots of renewable energy, clean energy solutions already pretty much mature at a really affordable, accessible situation there. We need to deploy them uh, at much, much larger scale and really not only overcome a lot of barriers, particularly to prevent the creation of new barriers like a geopolitical supply chain, security, whatever. But in the meantime, uh, governments, industries need to continue to invest in R&D, in new solutions or maybe down the road actually in a decade or so, including carbon capture storage uh, technologies there as well. Besides, I think the role of nature 
uh, is becoming more recognized as well. So nature-based solutions should also be added into that contest there. One side note though, uh, I think in not only the climate change, we also have biodiversity, we have land use, uh, you know, within the UN SDGs there, we have a whole sort of system of all the targets, 17 large targets, 169 sub-targets there. You know, global community has committed to deliver by 2030. Very recently review, midterm review tells us we are definitely falling behind. Uh, hopefully somehow by understanding why we're lagging behind in terms of delivering those commitments would help us actually to get a sense of urgency, particularly against the backdrop of this intensifying more frequent extreme weather events, climate disasters there. So we'll be able to really figure out uh, how to work together to accelerate the deployment of those solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Professor Meeling, so obviously uh, this is a global issue that requires global efforts and global collaboration, but uh, the thing is countries may not be on the same page on, on it. For instance, last month, uh, G20 member countries, which together account for over three quarters of global emissions, have failed to reach a consensus on phasing down fossil fuels. So how do you think that has reflected um, the complex web of interests and priorities among different countries? As you hint, you know, I think it reflects the tremendous complexity and diversity of interests and of natural circumstances around the world. Um, and it, it, it encapsulates in a way, if you like, one of the biggest challenges in achieving a consensual and, and sort of unified approach globally to cooperation around this issue. Um, and if you've attended climate conferences, the annual climate summits, the conferences of the parties to the UNFCCC and um, meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement, that's exactly what you will observe often there. They kind of, I, mean, I, I have no doubt that they're all sincere in sharing sort of the overarching aspiration and objective of dealing with this global challenge. There is no country that is just a net beneficiary of climate change. You know, traditionally we used to think that maybe Canada would be a net beneficiary. No, I mean, we're seeing the wildfires, we're seeing the droughts and other impacts, even in northern uh, or far southern countries that, that one might have thought might benefit from global warming. It's not true. All countries stand to, to suffer damages. So there is really, I think, a collective will to deal with the problem. The other side of this equation, though, is that each country has different circumstances. Some are rich, some are poor, some are very specialized in the technologies of the future, and others are highly specialized in some of the incumbent technologies, precisely those that we're trying to get away from and phase out. And you mentioned phasing out fossil fuels. And so it is from a purely sort of domestic and national interest point of view, probably not surprising that countries around the Persian Gulf, for instance, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, etc., which still derive tremendous amounts of their economic activity from these fossil fuels, are cautious in just saying we have to phase out as rapidly as we can, and are instead sort of saying, well, can we do this in a more balanced way? We need to think about the impacts. You know, we need to think about ways to potentially still use fossil fuels, but deal with the emissions. So there's different ways of looking at the problem and at the solutions to the problem. And again, it's a tremendously diverse global landscape, if you like, each country has slightly different circumstances. And that's what's reflected in this failure to agree on the same things on all issues. I still believe, though, that we're all kind of pushing in the same direction. But there will be some of these difficult um, balancing acts that we have to achieve in order to get all countries to join us. Just as we have just transition challenges at the micro level, you know, in local communities, we also have these sort of imbalances at the at the global level. And that is a, a really complicated, difficult diplomatic balancing act to to overcome. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so, Professor Newman, it is estimated that the cost of energy transition is four trillion US dollars annually globally. So what are the key barriers in mobilizing climate finance and how can international cooperation and financial mechanisms be enhanced to ensure equitable and efficient distribution of funds to support climate action in developing countries? Yeah, well, as I said, $4 trillion seems very small compared to the $88 trillion that's available for net zero projects. So I don't think there's a shortage of finance in the world, as long as the projects can be demonstrated. If they are continuing business as usual, they'll struggle to get their money. 
some of the gas projects and oil projects that are continuing to be proposed for the next 50 years are going to collapse. They are not going to be able to get their finance because they can't demonstrate that they are part of the future transition. And that pressure is coming from a whole range of factors. And one of them is this global boiling phenomenon. The reality is the more that companies keep trying to do business as usual, they will be targeted by people who are very angry now. And they will be showing the world that these companies are responsible for that heat. That's the world we're now entering. And that's a pressure from below, from the communities, but also the world of trade where there are these barriers that are being put up. Uh, the EU is beginning its trials on how any product that does not meet their net zero requirements and is fully certified will have to pay a tax at the border on those products. That's the world that's emerging and forcing this change. It's in many ways, uh, the governments just now need to work with that money and say, look, get on with it. Uh, and we are ensuring that that change will accelerate by saying it will cost you more and more if you don't do this. And eventually your business will collapse unless you change. That's the world we're now entering. Okay, so Professor Wu, um, how do you think we can bridge the gap between the urgency of climate action and the challenges of implementing uh, those policies, especially when vested interests might resist transformative changes? Well, uh, I, I want to share the optimism, actually, both Michael and Peter uh, have mentioned. Uh, honestly, I think the world is already on this track towards a net, a net zero carbon emission future because we all, you know, countries, rich and poor, large and small, uh, companies, actually more and more companies have all committed to this. Now, we are at this critical moment. We need to figure out actually a lot of the dimensions, the details that really will be able to pull all the pieces together in order to really advance. This is a trans this is about a system transformation. I think that that's where we are today. Another point I do think you mentioned about this four trillion dollars a year, the cost you use the word the cost. I, rather, I, I, I see that's an opportunity, right? I, I think that's the market actually we need to create. Uh, to create new growth opportunities. I think China you know, definitely is a good representative in that particular case. If you look at China's renewable energy uh, developments, which is such a big thing actually, really you know, giving us the optimism at this moment, is that we, it's not to say we do whatever conventional, traditional industries there, rather the country treats this sort of renewable energy you know, transition or transformation as the shift restructuring of its you know, industry, its landscape, its infrastructure, its new investment opportunities there. That's how, that's why actually uh, where China uh, stands today, because we literally put all the incentives together to incentivize, you know, R&D, technology innovation, uh, you know, uh, manufacturing capability, uh, build up the value chains, not only China, but globally, and really get the investment together there as well. That's why the industrial value chain, particular for uh, clean energy transition, is literally led by China, right? So if you look at China domestically, the half, the first half of this year, we already see saw 34% of China's electricity generated from non-fossil fuels there, right? And which is a fascinating, could do, do more, do faster? Yes, I think so. I definitely think so. But in the meantime, I think early on, we talked about this sort of mismatch, right? On one side, we need to address those climate change challenges. But in the meantime, somehow the renewable energy, clean energy is not totally there yet. That's why we need to, you know, to turn on the air conditioning. We consume more fossil fuels, get more emissions actually into the atmosphere, really get, get this, you know, situation get worse. And so somehow the only solution seems to be we just need to really accelerate accelerate the deployment, the scale, investment, and get all the resources coming together so we'll be able to get to the point faster, 
in order to meet the challenges where we are facing today. Uh, other than that, I don't think, you know, it, the slow movement actually will get us in a situation will continue to suffer, continue to uh, lose our lives, livelihoods, uh, get our food security, water security, energy security threatens, create more uncertainties and risks and more threats, basically. So hopefully that sense of urgency would really get somehow uh, policymakers, business investment, everyone together to act together and act faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so Professor Meiling, um, do you think governments and stakeholders will be able to strike a balance between uh, promoting rapid economic growth and ensuring effective climate action? And how do you look at the potential synergies between these goals? <laughs> yes, so that is, I think, the the, the the big, well, should we say, sort of um, stereotypically, the, the the billion or the trillion dollar question. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I, I share the optimism that both Changhua and Peter were expressing. I think we will manage this. Unfortunately, I think we're only starting to do so in some parts of the world where indeed the politics are still thorny and not everybody's even convinced, despite the overwhelming evidence that climate change is happening, despite the pretty much unanimous uh, voice from science, you know, the the politics are still not everywhere caught up with the realities, that's for sure. So unfortunately, I feel like we we are still having to suffer more and more of these impacts before everybody around the world is really convinced that we have to prioritize this challenge. And as we reach that at different speeds, but we are getting there, you know, increasing in different parts of the world, and especially with the younger generation, this is a top priority. This is not just sort of a an issue of a Ministry of Environment or Climate Center. This is at the head of state and government level. Um, I think we're, we're, we're taking the steps necessary, redirecting investment, adopting policies that will indeed hit some entrenched and you know articulate interests in negative ways in order to achieve those things that we have to achieve on climate, but also unlock other opportunities for new sectors, for new actors and producers and so on. So it's not going to be easy, I think. It's not always going to be a without stumbling, but altogether, I think the direction is correct and, and we're moving there, just not fast enough. That's the only drawback. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Professor Michael Milling, Deputy Director of the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research. Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Australia and lead author at the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center. And thank you all for being with us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.